0: Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is Jordan Furlong, a legal industry analyst who has been writing, thinking and speaking about the intersection of law and business for over 20 years. As the mastermind behind Law21, he is on the constant lookout for critical new developments, and emerging patterns in the legal services ecosystem. He uses these insights to advise legal organizations how to plan their strategy and achieve their goals. We had a lively conversation on lawyer formation, meaning the education and development of practicing lawyers, and what he sees as gaps in training and how those influenced his own path in the industry. Listen in and you'll learn more about how Jordan is working toward a better future for the legal profession and the society it serves. Why it takes persistence, politeness, and understanding. Thanks for listening. Jordan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for making the time for us.
1: Stephen, thank you very much for having me on today. I really appreciate it.
0: We are catching you in Ottawa, I presume?
1: That's correct, yep.
0: Yeah. How are things up north?
1: Surprisingly mild <laughs> for the, for the <laughs> middle of March. Uh, no, no, no guarantees, of course. you know We could very easily get a big dump of snow tomorrow. But so far, it's been nice. It's nice to everybody, I think, has that feeling of opening up a little bit now and, and kind of stretching out and taking the blinders off. And it's, it's nice to have that feeling weather-wise as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it is. I assume for the last couple of years, you've been operating mostly virtually. How has that been for you? Because I suspect you spent a lot of time traveling and speaking and connecting with people pre-pandemic. Yeah. How has that affected your business, your lifestyle, your psyche?
1: Well, it's a really good question, Stephen, because interestingly enough, it was a little over two years ago today that I was in Chicago uh, at ABA Tech Show chatting with some friends. And up to that point, I had spent about the last 10 years, I guess, in the business of writing about, talking, speaking about changes in the law, the legal sector, law firms, client relationships, and so forth, and was fortunate enough to be able to attend conferences and law firm retreats and so forth. And I would get up and talk about all these all these various changes. And I remember saying to some friends of mine there, you know, it's been good and I feel like I made a difference, but I'm feeling also like it's maybe time to do something a little bit different. It's, you know, at a certain point, you're going to get tired of the airports, trying to get tired of the hotels. And then, you know, a week later, the pandemic <laughs> the said, OK, yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, they have to be careful what you ask for. So yeah, um,
0: these days, that's true, isn't it?
1: So, so it really was for me kind of a, an enforced opportunity to rethink what I was doing. And what I've been very fortunate to do over the last couple of years is switched gears, kind of moving away from going around and speaking to lawyers and law firms about change in the market. And partly that was because I sort of concluded, you know what, I've kind of said what I can say. You know, I, I wrote the book a few years ago. I've, I've made that available free for anybody who wants to read it. I've got a ridiculous number of blog posts up at Law21. I've kind of said my piece there. And I said, maybe it's time to shift gears. And so I'm now working a bit more in I guess you could call the broad regulatory field, looking at issues such as the formation of lawyers, legal education, training, bar admission, licensing, as well as, I guess, in related issues, the questions of who gets to deliver legal services and how do we construct systems that will allow the most high quality services to be delivered to the most people. And I've had the opportunity to switch away from speaking about the law in person to writing. So I'm doing a lot of consulting and a lot of report writing for regulators and affiliated entities. And so, again, I feel really fortunate that I was able to kind of pivot over these last couple of years into doing something which also feels to me like it has a lot of value and can have an impact.
0: Yeah, for those of you who are listening who haven't followed Jordan on his blog, it's law21.ca. That's right. And the most recent, at least the most recent one I've seen is called The Way We've Always Done It Is Wrong. I think (laughs) it's such such a fabulous title. It sort of captures the last 40 years for me. Uh, But uh, you started out practicing and you you practice for a year and you write in your blog, That it was just long enough to conclude that you were cut out for a different line of work, which uh, a number of our guests on the podcast have had that sort of experience. What was it about the practice that led you to continue to be fascinated and an astute observer of the legal profession, but not want to practice law? What was it about that year?
1: Yeah. And again, it's really interesting because, you know, time's a flat circle. And it's funny that I'm now working in areas like a lawyer formation and preparation development, because I think it really does tie into that first experience I had with the legal profession, because went to a fine law school and my first job was with a, a very, you know, fine, uh, large law firm in Toronto. Lake Castle's a great law firm. And still are. And I was I was, again, fortunate to be able to spend my articling year there. And what I found, both during that year and in the period of time that followed my call to the bar, was as far as the legal profession was concerned, I was a lawyer. I was ready. I was prepared. I could serve any client on any issue, any matter whatsoever, and I knew that none of that was true. <laughs> none of that. I was not <laughs> remotely ready to do any of these things, and I really kind of felt that as I encountered the practice, of law, I realized. I spent the last three or four years preparing for something which is completely different from that which I am now encased. And that feeling of we sometimes call it imposter syndrome, but I think that actually misdescribes it in a way. I really think that it is something where you are prepared for one destination and you were delivered to an entirely different one. It's not that you're an imposter, it's that you are in a place that you were never prepared for. And I don't think my experience was unique in this regard, talking to many lawyers who've really struggled. In a lot of ways, I consider myself fortunate that I was able to kind of veer out of the practice of law relatively early on. So and, and I do look back on that, Stephen, with a degree of regret, because I do think that properly positioned, properly prepared and ready, you know, up here mentally and, and everywhere else. I think it probably could have made a pretty decent go at being a lawyer. And I'm, and I'm kind of sorry that that never happened. At the same time, one of my favorite observations was from Douglas Adams, who wrote the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books, of course, most famously, but also wrote a series of books about a holistic detective named Dirk Gently. It's an entirely different story. And at one point, one of the characters there is describing his journey. And he says, you know, I didn't wind up where I intended to go, but I think I've ended up where I needed to be. And that's really how I feel about how my career has gone. Because... I was able to first in terms of kind of falling into legal journalism and becoming a writer and eventually an editor for a series of periodicals here in Canada for lawyers and then moving into the whole area of, of, again, writing and speaking about the law. And I just thought, you know what, this is where I can actually make a real difference. I feel that this is my impact area. You know, everyone's got that. Everyone's got that little niche. I think most of us have more than one niche in our lives. And I was really lucky to be able to find that one particular niche. And it was largely because I felt, you know what? The practice of law isn't for me and I'm not for the practice of law. And that's OK. And that's, you know, something I, t- I talk to law students a lot and talk to law schools a lot. And I try to say to them, look, there are multiple pathways forward out of law school into your lives. Do not feel you have to squeeze and crush and bend yourself into that square hole of being a lawyer in a law firm. If you want to be there, awesome. That's great. But there are many, many other pathways down which you can go.
0: I want to come back. Let's put a bookmark on that. I want to come back to that because there's reality of how much law school costs, the amount of debt, and the amount of choices people actually have coming out of law school. But you chose to go into legal journalism. Did you have a desire to be a journalist before going to law school? What was it that led you down that path as opposed to one of the many other paths I'm sure that were open before you? Yeah.
1: I think that for me, journalism was something I considered when I was doing my undergraduate degree because. I really enjoyed writing and, and I still do. And writing, I think in a lot of ways, is the thing I love to do the most and I'm probably best at more than anything else. And, and I did dabble around journalism a little bit. And what I kind of came to realize was that journalism was maybe a little less about writing and more about just generally being nosy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if, if you're a journalist, you re- it really matters to you what's going on. I want to dig into this. I want to find out what's going on. And it's Curiosity
0: is an important trait for journalists, isn't it?
1: It absolutely is, you know, and, and you got you to know that. And to be able to do that, you got to be the kind of person who's willing to sit through a six and a half hour council meeting to hear the one thing that you need to know. And so for me, the journalism was a way in which I could write and I could expound and, and, and expand upon that particular area. But what I really found as well, and again, it's all accidental, you know, you never know until you get there. But what I found was that I really enjoyed being able to communicate to other people information that they need, information that was useful. And in the early days of journalism, that's like, hey, Supreme Court just ruled on this, or the Court of Appeal has decided this, whatever. And then as time went on and I began to work with more less frequently uh, publishing periodicals, it moved into more the business of law and the practice of law. And it's like, hey, you know what? Lawyers don't know enough. We are not educated, we're not trained, we're not prepared. Here's what you need to know about running a good business, about pleasing your clients, about working well with your colleagues. And the opportunity to deliver to people insights and information that they didn't have but they needed, I found it incredibly appealing. And in a lot of ways, that's really driven everything I've done from that point forward. When I'm up on a stage talking to law firms about stuff, I said, Hey, you need to know this stuff. It's gonna matter to you, to your career, to your firm, to your clients, to everything. But here's what it is. Here's the message. And I really hope you do something good with it because you know it's important stuff.
0: Yeah, it's an important skill to learn, isn't it? That's not something that people are trained in as a as a normal course of business, but it's a, it's an important characteristic for people who are trying to drive change. Uh-huh. What led you uh-huh. to evolve from pure journalism into consulting, writing, speaking, your your current gig?
1: You know, it's funny because when I switched into and and the periodical where I spent most of my time was the Canadian Bar Association's national magazine, and because it published so infrequently, we couldn't do breaking news or cases. So it was really kind of more the practice and the business of law. And the more I looked at this area, more, the more I thought, this doesn't make a lick of sense. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> why, why, why are we doing it this way? Nobody seems happy. The lawyers I talked to weren't happy. Clients aren't happy. You know, what's the deal here? And so these are the things I began to write more and more about in my editorial capacity. And I would begin to get a, a, a call from someone saying, hey, we're having a panel on this particular subject. We've seen you writing on this. Would you like to join the panel and speak to it? Or would you like to be a speaker? And I said, yeah, sure. That, hey, I appreciate that. That'd be awesome. They said, that's really great how much do you charge? And I thought, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I didn't have know. an answer for I, that. I didn't know this was a thing, uh, but apparently okay. it is. And that was really what it was. I, I got to the point where the things I had to say seemed to be sayable by few enough other people. And I was saying them with enough effectiveness. People said, you know what? We will bring you in to, to talk about this. And it was really a kind of as simple as finding the best way forward. I mean, I make it all sound like a happy accident and to a certain degree it was, but it was also experimentation. So I, I started out the blog around 2008, 2009, and it caught on a lot faster than I thought it was going to. And at a certain point, I thought, you know what, maybe there's a way I can turn this into something like, like the foundation of a, of, of a career, of a business. And so I conducted some market research because I had a number, I had like hundreds and hundreds, uh, maybe even like the low thousands of readers at this point. So I did some research and said, hey, listen, if I turn this into something where I'm interviewing people and I'm giving you all sorts of inside information and so forth, and I made it subscription only, and you get lots of value out of this, would you pay a subscription to access this information? And I did all this research and I asked all sorts of people who, who subscribed and read my stuff, and the resounding answer was no, no, they're not going to do that because <laughs> content is meant to be free and that's the way it is. So, and, and I did a lot of that. I did a lot of poking around, experimenting, seeing which of these works. And honestly, speaking could have been the same thing. Speaking could have been something where I tried a couple of times and was like, oh, my gosh, I'm just bombing up here like a bad stand-up comic. I have to try something else. So and again, something else I'm talking to law students, I, I sort of say, look, don't be afraid to try some stuff and accept the fact that some of the things you're going to try, you're going to crash and burn. But that's all right, because you're going to walk away from the crash and you're going to be in better position than you were before before you went in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, that resilience is something law schools don't really teach well, but it's such a it's such a core component to what it means to be a really great lawyer, to be really great in a lot of aspects. You've spent a lot of time recently writing about what you refer to as formation, the creation of lawyers, the law yeah. schools. Talk to us a little bit about your thoughts, because that's a lot of debate with what's going on in the States between do we still have the bar exam? Do we need three years of law school? Then there's a whole cost associated with law school, which for many law students diminishes their ability to choose their paths in the profession because they have such uh-huh. law school debt. It's a, That's a lot of issues sort of embedded in there. Yeah. Maybe you can help us sort of share some of your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah and and this kind of goes back to the title of the last uh, that last blog post you know the way we've been doing it is wrong which i do think right. applies in many dimensions across the law but it especially applies i think to the lawyer formation and licensing and and development process because we do ask ourselves things like well Is law school too long? Should we have just two years of law school? Should we find ways to do this and this and this with law school? And how about the bar exam? How do we make the bar exam better and so forth? And I think the mistake we're making here is that we are taking these elements, uh, these existing elements of the bar admission process as a given. We're we're assuming that these are the tools with which we must work. And we're confusing inputs because that's all they are, right? They're input mechanisms. We're confusing them for the essentials of what it means to be a lawyer. So where I start the whole process is asking, I think a relatively straightforward question. What would you want to know about someone before you agreed that they should be allowed to become a lawyer, right? Tell me, you know, what's, what's the profile of a competent lawyer on the first day of their career, right? Again, we're not talking someone who's five or 10 or 30 years down the road. On day one, what does this person need to know? What skills must they demonstrably possess And what characteristics or attributes must they have for us to feel, yeah, you're ready to do this? And that kind of competence profile or framework has been absent pretty much for the entirety of the lawyer development process, right? If you said to a state Supreme Court or here in Canada, a law society, describe to me in details with specifics, what are the competencies of a brand new lawyer? They couldn't tell you because we don't know. All we've ever done, we've, we've taken proxies. We say you got a law degree. That's a proxy for knowledge. You've done the, the bar exam. Presumably that's a proxy for more knowledge, maybe, and, and some practical skill. And that's it. But we've never actually created a threshold lens or a threshold process through which you must go to which you can aspire So, the work that I'm doing or trying to do these days is to help construct those frameworks. And there are some good examples. There's a couple of good examples here in Canada. There's a great one over in England and Wales for the Solicitors Regulation Authority. And once you've got that framework in place, once you've got a set of characteristics and attributes and knowledge and skills to say, this is what you need in order to become a lawyer, then as a regulator, you need to take two other steps, well, three if you count tell people what it is, right, Right. you know, announce to people, this is the framework, these are the competencies. If you want to become a lawyer, here's what you've got to know and be able to do and so forth. Okay, that's step one. Step two is if I am someone who wishes to become a lawyer, I say, hey, that's great. Great to know what the competencies are. How do I get them? How do I acquire the competencies that you need from me in order to become a lawyer? Okay. And if we're going to be able to say to people, you can obtain these competencies, they've got to be reasonably accessible. And reasonably accessible does not mean three years and $100,000 in an institute of higher learning to get a degree, which, although every single regulator in North America requires it as an essential element of bar admission, not one regulator anywhere in North America is satisfied with. It blows me away. I, I talked to regulators about this. I said, you have created a sole supplier situation. You would demand that everybody who wants to become a lawyer has to have one of these, but you don't even like these, <laughs> right? You're always right. talking about how it's not satisfactory. Like the fact that we have bar exams blows my mind. We tell people spend three years, spend $100,000, get this law degree. Okay, you got that? Now, everything you just learned there, we're going to make you show us again in the space of a few months time if we were satisfied with law degrees, we wouldn't have the bar exam. If we were satisfied with the the first three years of your legal career in law school, we wouldn't have all these processes. The fact that we do tells us that it's unsatisfactory.
0: So how does your conversation with the regulatory folks go? Because what you're saying makes complete sense to me, and, and I have long fought along the same lines you're talking about. But you're talking about people whose careers, their livelihoods, are wrapped up in the status, not to overstate it, but wrapped up in the status quo. Yeah. That's going to be a challenging conversation, a challenging change dynamic you're trying to drive.
1: How do you manage that side of it? Uh, With persistence and and politeness and an understanding that, again, this is the framework within which these people have always operated. And these are assumptions that they have always uh, proceeded under. I've been very fortunate in that when I'm talking, I guess it's not surprising the regulatory authorities with whom I've been in touch are ones who are more open and are more willing to consider new approaches. And you and I both can think of many jurisdictions where you know the regulatory authority, you know that the Supreme Court has no interest whatsoever in having even having a conversation right. cough, Florida cough about, <laughs> about changing <laughs> the way we do things. So it helps to have a willing audience. But I think a lot of it really kind of comes back to, again, if I'm addressing that myself to a regulator to say, what is your core function? Why do you exist? Why does this function exist? If your job is to license lawyers, what outcome are you trying to achieve with this? Okay. And the standard approach that you, you hear from regulators of all kinds and, and, and the defenders of the status quo, we have to protect the public, right? This, you've heard this many times. We have to protect uh, the, the, the public. You have to, all the time. And what I want to say to them, I have to ask this question very carefully, is protect them from what precisely are we protecting them from? Okay, And that leads to an interesting conversation because oftentimes they don't have an answer beyond, well, we're protecting them from unscrupulous people and incompetent individuals. Okay, That's good. But how do you know that the people who aren't lawyers are unscrupulous and incompetent? And how do you know that the people who are lawyers are scrupulous and competent. And the way I approach it to them, I said, look, pretend it's not me asking you because I'm nobody. But pretend, I don't know, an attorney general has approached you and said, hi, we've noticed that the practice of law is self-regulating and we've noticed it's kind of a hot mess. Maybe you and us can have a conversation about that. So I think really, yes, you, you need to have a certain willingness and a certain openness on the part of the regulator. But it's also getting them to go back to core functions, core purposes. And yeah, if they're in the thrall of the old saying that, you know, it's very difficult, as the saying has always gone, to make a man understand something if his job depends on him not understanding it. Okay, fine. There's not much I can do about that. But if the door can be pushed open a little bit, then you walk in and say, what are you really trying to achieve here? Because again, when you go back to this idea of a competence framework, if you say, for instance, This is the knowledge that you must have in order to become a lawyer. Okay. Let's draw a circle around all that knowledge that you require of a new lawyer. Let's draw a circle around the knowledge that you are guaranteed to get from a law degree. Here's a old Venn diagram. How much of these circles overlap? I'm guessing not a whole lot in many cases. So again, number one, why are you forcing everybody to spend three years gathering knowledge, which only represents a percentage of what they're actually going to need, but also, are there other ways they could get this knowledge? Are there other places that they could go? Are there organizations or entities or other providers who might be able to give people this knowledge that they don't already have? And if this provider doesn't have all kinds of big limestone buildings and doesn't have a crest with a Latin motto and doesn't have a football team, who cares, right? What matters right. is, can they deliver the competence to the person who needs it to become a lawyer? That question alone, really considering it, just shakes the foundation of everything we've been doing in lawyer formation for decades.
0: Yeah, you also wrote an interesting post, a few posts earlier than the one we're talking about on, we're talking about defining competence. Mm. You talk about specific competence versus general competence. I found those concepts fascinating. The practice is so multifaceted from sole practitioners who do have to know a little bit of everything to lawyers and big firms who are highly specialized and highly functioned, how do you apply competency standards across this sort of multifaceted profession?
1: And that, that I think really is the core question, isn't it? Because the idea of competence, again, at the point of licensure is, it's a complex endeavor and it's, you know, and it's difficult undertaking, but it can be done as we have seen from, from various jurisdictions. The issue then becomes though, when you are in practice, How do you know that someone is competent in a given area? And to a practical extent, we do kind of rely upon lawyers to make this assessment themselves. And in that blog post, you'd mentioned around general versus specific competence. In a lot of ways, specific competence is the question a lawyer asks themselves. So someone comes to them and says, hey, I want you to do A, B, and C. And the lawyer says, you know what? A, B, and C is not my thing. Or like maybe A and B is, but C, eh, you need to talk to someone else about that. And again, something that we don't really train and develop and help lawyers to gain is that skill of being able to say no to something. So many issues that come around client disappointments and complaints and and regulatory issues and errors and omissions comes from this kind of dabbling, this kind of saying, oh, "I can kind of probably figure it out as I go along."
0: I go look um, at the book and it'll tell me something, and I can figure it out, right? Exactly. I know how to research.
1: Yeah, exactly. I'm a lawyer. I'm smart. Many people, by the way, as you know, especially people who aren't lawyers, but who work with them, often remark on how lawyers have a supreme and completely unfounded confidence in their ability to master any subject, right? Well, yes, <laughs> I know it's thermal mechanics, but I'm a lawyer. I can, I, I can figure this out. So when you look at the question of, of regulation in that regard, I think in practical terms at scale, you cannot regulate lawyers in the sense of monitoring them all the time or assessing them all the time. Even in England and Wales, where they are talking, the Legal Services Board of England and Wales is talking about the idea of ongoing competence checks for experienced lawyers. And maybe even if those checks don't fly, the question of having to reaccredit to kind of learn again, or the analogy I give is that much like being a driver, you know, you, you pass your driver's test once, you're a driver for a life. You just have to redo your license. And we take the same approach to being a lawyer. You get your license, you're a lawyer forever until you, unless you really mess up. What if we basically said instead to drivers, hey, every 10 years, you got to take the test again because we get sloppy as drivers and we do rolling stops and we don't check our blind spot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's something we could do. I don't think it's going to happen, but we could do that. You could do the same thing again with lawyers if you really wanted to. I think it would be an extraordinarily difficult mountain to climb and the cultural resistance would be incredibly high. So I think in practical terms, what you do is you have to rely on lawyers to have the ability to make those assessments. But again, they don't come to this naturally. One of the points I've been talking about with the regulators is that in terms of continuing competence, ongoing competence, I worked with one regulator here in Canada at the Law Society of Alberta that has a really cool continuing competence system. There's no minimum CLE hours requirement. It's the only place in North America think that does it that way. They essentially say, look, You're a lawyer. Your job is to get better at what you do. And only you can figure out where you need to get better and how. So you make a plan. You're at point A. What does point B look like a year from now? You know, a year from now, you want to be better at this, this and that. Great. Here's a bunch of courses you can take. Here's some stuff you can do, but you do it yourself. And that's great if lawyers have had the ability to even think about ways in which they could improve, which again, we're not really good at. And they've been trained in the process of ongoing improvement. So again, it comes back to what kind of skills are we ensuring that people have either at the start of their careers or over their first few years? To the extent that we can make improvements in that area, then I think we really start making progress in terms of competence in in an ongoing fashion.
0: Where do you see progress on the regulatory front being made? You've talked a little bit about England or Wales. You've talked a little bit about Canada. I know you've yep. written about Oregon and Arizona in the states. What's happening on the regulatory front that you find most interesting and most promising in this respect?
1: I remain encouraged and heartened by what the various, if you call them sandbox jurisdictions are doing. And this is, this like is Utah, Utah. And- Utah, North Carolina, Florida made a, a gallant attempt, and it's just been shot down. California have been making gallant attempts. That's being pushed back on. And I note in passing that you can tell how threatening these initiatives are to the status quo by the amount of pushback they're receiving. Because your objective observer would say, okay, so you're gonna set up a system by which someone who's not a lawyer wants to provide legal services, they register with a regulator, they are closely monitored, data is gathered about their services they provide, and after a period of two years, if their noses are clean, they get to become uh, authorized providers. Yeah, what's the problem here? And as far as, let's say, the Supreme Court of Florida or other individuals are concerned, anathema. This is like, we can't even imagine this kind of thing. So the fact that something so modest generates such intense reaction just tells you, I think, how threatened they actually feel. So I, I really do admire, and I, and I want to continue seeing what these jurisdictions can do. I love what Arizona did by saying, you know what? We're just going the whole nine yards. We're they just skip the sand rocks. Yeah. Skip the sandbox, went straight to it. And I'm not saying, by the way, one approach is better than the other. Having worked with regulators, having worked with lawyers, there's a lot to be said for the incremental pilot project approach. And I think we're too early in the process to say whether either of these is superior. I think they're both effective. They're both having an impact. But again, the resistance is significant. In terms of real change and stuff, it's going to really move the needle. What Oregon is doing is fascinating to me. And again, this is because I'm focused these days on lawyer formation. They are pushing hard towards new pathways into the profession. And one Mm -hmm. of them is extensive clinical and externship work in law school. And the other is kind of a modified version of Canada's articling system, 1,000 to 1,500 hours of practice with an experienced lawyer in lieu of the bar exam. Now, again, there are people who are dead set against this. And I say to them, hang on, you're telling me that writing a test, which is going to take you a couple of months to study for, maybe at most, and it's going to take you three, four, five hours to write, and it's a test. This is superior to spending six months working under the supervision of a lawyer with actual clients in an actual law office in the real world we all live in. How is that possible? So, obviously, what Oregon is proposing is not only an acceptable alternative, it is a vastly superior alternative to the way we have been doing things so far. And I think that there is a pathway forward for Oregon to establish this beachhead and for other jurisdictions, other states to say, hey, that's workable too. New Hampshire was really the leader here with the Daniel Webster program at their law school. But any jurisdiction could do this any any time. There's nothing magical about the bar exam. The only reason that we do it, the bar exam is that we've always done it before. So Oregon's really interesting. If we're talking really large scale, however, changes. Then we're talking about the questions of, so who actually makes the rules? Now, in Canada, regulatory power resides in groups called law societies. The judiciary has no role in legal regulation in Canada. It was kind of weird to me when I first came down to the US. It's was like, whoa, really? You're judges? Wow, okay. But law societies, they are statutorily created bodies. They have mandates from the legislature, and their job is to regulate lawyers, blah, 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 blah. Okay. But the way that law societies run in Canada is that the directors, if you will, the board of governors are mostly lawyers and not only are they mostly lawyers, but they are elected by other lawyers They have campaigns vote for me to become a governor. Of
0: course, that's the way lawyers would do it.
1: Right. Of course, (laughs) that's the way they would do it. And what kind of system do you think winds up when you have lawyers (laughs) who are elected by other lawyers to govern themselves? it's five kinds of wacky. So one province here in Canada, British Columbia, is now pushing in the direction of changing its governance structure, of saying, you know what, we're not going to have mostly elected lawyers because there's a a small number of lay governors, but they tend to be outnumbered very easily. We're going to change the structure. We're not going to have people elected. We're going to have lawyers maybe constitute 50% uh, maximum of the number of of governors, these kinds of changes. And if you can imagine any given U.S. state where suddenly it's not the Supreme Court that's making these decisions. Maybe it's a third party organization where all the directors are skilled and experienced and appointed. They represent a broad swath of stakeholders in the justice system. It is a co-production of the legislature and the judiciary. The legal profession is involved. Lawyers are on part of these directors, but they're not the only ones involved in it. What does regulation start to look like then? How do we approach it then? California, I really think when they split their bar, made the first giant step in that direction. And I would love to see more states do that because that is really, when you go to any particular regulatory question, you always come up against the, yeah, but the regulators won't allow it. The court won't allow it. It won't, won't allow it, won't allow it. And I get really irritated when someone says, well, I'm not allowed to do this. It's like, well, maybe the entire not allowed structure has to be taken down. We're in a very fluid, dynamic time in political terms, in social terms. I would not be comfortable at all sitting on top of a longstanding hierarchical organizational structure that has been shown to push back against innovation, push back against broader access to justice and making rules to suit itself. I wouldn't want to be on top of that teetering edifice over the next five, 10 years
0: nor would I. And uh, you're doing some great work out there, Jordan, pushing this envelope and moving it forward. We've gone past our allotted time, but this has been a fascinating conversation. And I want to thank you so much for spending time with us today. We'll have to have you on again and continue the conversation. I got a whole page of questions for you we didn't get to.
1: (laughs) Fantastic. Stephen, thank you so much. I love the chance to talk about these things. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today and I look forward to the opportunity for us to uh, do it again sometime soon.
0: And if people want to connect with you, is the best way to do it through your uh, your website, your blog?
1: That would be great. And also, I'm on Twitter probably more than I'm on the blog these days. So it's Jordan underscore law 21 or something like this. I like that there's like there's three Jordan furlongs on Twitter, and one of them is like a high school student somewhere in Britain. So I, I think if you look <laughs> me up on Twitter, it's probably me.
0: Okay. Everybody find Jordan and not the high school <laughs> student in Britain. Jordan, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.